I need to remind you of something. Jesus taught on the permanence of marriage, and he also taught on the ugly reality of divorce already in Matthew chapter 5. And so at that time, when we came to Matthew chapter 5, we looked at that passage, and at that point, I chose to go ahead and bring in the material from Matthew 19, where Jesus speaks about marriage. And so because of this, this morning, I've chosen not to go over that passage again. I've chosen to simply go past it in Matthew 19. So if you think, well, this doesn't seem like Lectio Continua, to steal a phrase from Charlie. This seems like Lectio Discontinua. We have skipped a passage. I want you to know that's on purpose. Um, my encouragement to you is this. Many of you are, are new enough that you uh, didn't hear that sermon from Matthew 5. And so if that is you, or if you are, uh, have been here long enough, but you didn't remember me preaching on that, then please go back. Check out the church website. I don't do promos for the church website very often. But go and, and listen to that episode. Listen to that sermon on the subject of divorce. Much of what I want to say this morning assumes a lot of those conclusions. And I think that this passage makes sense on its own, but I want to issue that reminder in case you've returned and wondered what is going on. I'm feeling very confused. Why are we in Matthew 19, 9, instead of reading the first part of that? Uh, that being said, our passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 9 to 12. Hear now the word of God. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, there are so many people with different situations and backgrounds, not only in this room, but also listening online. Uh, there are children teenagers, singles, married, divorced, widow or widower, so many different walks of life. Please help us all to hear the good things that you have for us in your word today, whichever of these positions we find ourselves in. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. At, at first glance, today's passage is about singleness. But, and, and as I started to work on this sermon, as I started to work on this, it suddenly turned into a very long sermon. And I know I've been doing a lot of those lately, so you think, what's changed now? Um, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be more restrained. And, and as I worked on this, I actually really saw two sides of the coin that need to be talked about, two sides of, of this issue that the passage raises. And so it was easier, I think, to just simply divide the issue and talk about both of these subjects, to talk about marriage and its goodness and, and its usefulness, usefulness, but also to remind us that marriage is not the ultimate mountaintop uh, of human ex experience. Um, and it is not the highest state of human life that God designed either. 
Uh, and so as, as we sort of lay the groundwork to talk about singleness next week, I think it's important for us to talk about marriage and its limitations this morning. Ultimately, God made, him for, made us for himself. He didn't make us for one another. Not ultimately. He made us for one another, but not ultimately. Ultimately, God made us to know him. But he made marriage as something that is important, but also temporary. Not something that goes into eternity. And he also made marriage as something that if we don't have it, that doesn't make us incomplete human beings. See, it's not good for man to be alone. But Jesus also says here that some are single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so to me, it's important that while speaking very highly of marriage and saying what God has said about marriage, I don't want to give you something lopsided. I want us to be realistic and transparent about it the way that scripture is. And so in this passage, the disciples have they've just been challenged by the idea that marriage is hard, that it's lifelong, that divorce is not God's will. And the conclusion that the disciples derive from this is that it is better not to marry. And this is the thing I want us to to notice here is that Jesus doesn't challenge that conclusion. Instead, he accepts the conclusion and tells them why some people will find it hard to receive this saying. And so what I what I think is so helpful here is that Jesus is very realistic. He's realistic. He's he's saying that there are some people who can hear the challenge of singleness and hear the challenge and the call of devotion to God and they'll be able to hear it. They will be able to bear it. They will be able to live it out. And there are others who will not. The only people who can really bear to hear this and live this out is those that Jesus calls. He uses this phrase eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the people, those who have the gifting for it to be able to live as Jesus says, who can accept what Jesus says here. But he recognizes, and I think this is probably a grand understatement, he recognizes that not everyone can receive this saying. Not everyone can receive this saying. And so following scripture, we have got to affirm the goodness of marriage. We, we did that already when we looked at the subject of adultery and divorce when Jesus raised it in Matthew 5. But then we also need to affirm with scripture the limitations of marriage. We need to affirm those twin realities that we so then then we won't undermine Jesus's words or Paul's words later. When Paul tells us of the goodness of singleness or he tells us uh, uh, that we should be content whichever position we find ourselves in. We don't want to undercut those things the way we talk about marriage. And so what we're looking at in this text is Jesus taking a very realistic approach to singleness in marriage. Jesus seems to be saying that even though singleness is good, the vast majority of people should be marrying. And so what I want to do is is talk about marriage this week, and then I want us to move to the subject of singleness next week. But you're going to see that these two sort of bleed into each other. They're very closely related. The first point this morning is the temporality of marriage. Temporality of marriage. What I mean by that is just simply marriage is not eternal. Jesus, the expert on heaven and eternity. If you look in Matthew 22, he has a, uh, an engaging discussion about the subject of marriage. And in that passage, he says that in heaven we will be neither marrying 
nor given in marriage in heaven, but instead will be like the angels. Now, the way he answers that raises so many questions for us. I think all of us go, wait a minute. So what are angels like when it comes to marriage? And he just doesn't, he just doesn't give us a whole lot. Um, and so this is a passage that's not easy to read. And it's not an easy passage to interpret necessarily. But it seems like what's going on in that passage is that Jesus is saying that the person who was married seven times, that's the situation that he's answering at that point. The person who's married seven times doesn't then have seven spouses in heaven because heaven is not a place where marriage is ongoing. And that says something for marriage right now. But let's get more basic. What is marriage? I know Uh, I should have probably led with that. But one of our denominations study committee reports defines marriage like this. Marriage is the unique one flesh relationship of a man and woman joined together by God in a union that he will be, but that, that he will wills to be both permanent and exclusive, binding the couple to each other in a lifelong companionship of common life and conjugal love. Um, we could focus on any part of that, and we could even pick it apart and really explain all the details, but I just want you to notice this phrase, lifelong companionship of common life and conjugal love. So, Notice the, the, the time limitations on this. It is a union that is lifelong, but it is not eternal. It's lifelong, but it doesn't go on into eternity. Now, marriage, according to Paul, is good for other reasons. It's, it's primarily because it pictures the marriage of Christ and his church. There are so many good things that we could uh, explain and affirm about marriage. Uh, the beauty of marriage, biblically speaking, Marriage itself preaches a sermon. Marriage itself preaches a sermon about the goodness of God, about the faithfulness of Jesus. And so when I I speak about marriage today, what you're going to hear from me in just a few minutes is the limits of marriage, what marriage can't do. But I want you to not misunderstand. It is good to marry. Marriage is a good. Marriage is a blessing. Um, I also didn't print the verses before this in the bulletin today, but if you're in your Bibles and you look higher, what you're going to see is Jesus affirming that from the beginning, it was God who designed a man and woman to become a one flesh union. And it was God's design that that one flesh union not be separated. So you see Jesus affirming what is stated and what's said in the book of Genesis. But this does take us to the first thing I really want to say about marriage this morning, which is that it is a present day, present age ordinance. And so what I mean by that is when marriage is first introduced in Scripture, it is in the very beginning of Genesis in in, in chapter two. Um, The fall of man hasn't taken place yet. And yet God makes the man and he is alone And in God's perfect, infallible evaluation, he says, it is not good that man should be alone. And so he creates Eve and Genesis says that they become one flesh. And that marriage in Genesis becomes the pattern of marriage for the rest of humanity, for the rest of human history. Uh, One man and one woman united and made one flesh. And what's so amazing about that is you have these two seeming opposites, and yet they're complementary. They they fit together. They're compatible with each other, and they're so different. 
Uh, They're brought together into a one flesh union that never existed before. There are no other options for marriage. There are no other patterns of in scripture. There's no pattern in scripture of, if you'll beg my pardon, two men coming together or two women coming together. In neither case is a one flesh union possible. And I need to talk about this for a moment because this is, this is actually a very important thing to talk about on the subject of singleness. This doesn't mean that there are not people who might strongly desire physical relationships with those of the same sex. But like all things that God forbids, like all desires for things that God forbids, these desires are meant to be answered by the gospel Informed by God's law and mortified by the spirit through the means of grace that God gives to us. And for many, that is a lifelong battle. And, and that, that might even be you. You might even be somebody who struggles with those desires. And I want you to know, whether you are here, whether you're listening online, whether you're listening later on the church website, I want you to know that if you are in a Christian church, then you are part of a church family where all of us are fighting various battles against sin and temptation. But the first step toward fighting sin, at the very least, is calling it what it is. And so if you you have a desire for a physical relationship with, with people of the same sex, and that is a persistent struggle... I want you to know two things. The first is this. Don't yield to temptation by telling yourself that what you desire is actually a good thing. The Bible is so clear that for a man to desire to be with another man is sin. And vice versa for for women. Um, There's an excellent book. Uh, I would recommend it by Don Fortson. It's called Unchanging Witness. And Don Fortson in that book just walks through exhaustively through the Bible's teachings on this subject. And he walks exhaustively through the witness of the church fathers and through every century of the church's existence. And he shows us that the church has always spoken with one voice on this subject and that the scriptures are clear. But here is the truth, though. The truth is that in spite of the clarity of scripture, in spite of the unchanging witness of the church in history... There are people out there who want to attempt gymnastics with the text to convince you that if you want it, then somehow it must be a good thing. The Bible doesn't just say that it's a sin to physically act out these desires. The Bible tells us that even to desire a forbidden thing is itself sin. And so what I want to say is do not yield to temptation. Instead, call sin what it is, wherever temptation might be in your life. Don't be Don't be arrogant and decide that you have a right to tell God what is right or to tell God what is wrong. Instead, approach God in humility. Look to his word and learn what is good and learn what is bad from God's word. I also want to say that someone who experiences such desires should not be pressured into living a life of singleness. All right, this is very important. This is another very common message in some Christian quarters. The message has, of some people has been to teach that if someone has an attraction to those of the same sex, then they must be called to a life of, of singleness. 
But this is a mistake. In fact, pressuring people into marriage who don't have the gift of singleness, uh, sorry, pressuring people into a life of singleness who are not gifted for a life of singleness is one of the things that our church's larger catechism says that the seventh commandment forbids actually. According to scripture, if someone burns, and we will talk about more about what it means for someone to burn next week. So if you find this uncomfortable, get ready for next week. But if someone burns, if someone lacks self-control, then they have a duty to pursue marriage as they have the opportunity. The scriptural answer for someone who struggles with sexual desire and even with same-sex attraction is not for them to live a lonely life of singleness. If a man struggles with this sin, he ought to pursue a biblical marriage with a woman as God designed and as he is called to love his wife. And the same goes for a woman. Now, there's currently sort of a cottage Christian subculture that's selling this idea that people who experience persistent temptation toward those of the same sex as if they're biblically required to live single lives and that they can't possibly marry. That simply is not true. And and in fact, it's a violation of God's law to call people to celibacy who are not gifted for celibacy. You require celibacy of people who don't have the gift of celibacy. You're, you're, you're sinning. You're actually violating the seventh commandment. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has done this in the past. That error continues even to this day. Calling people to celibate lives who are not gifted to live celibate lives. Um, one of the commentators on our church confession, his name is Thomas Ridgely. Listen to what he says. He says, as for those who cannot govern their affections, but are sometimes tempted to anything which is inconsistent with purity of heart and life, it is their duty to enter into a married state, which is an ordinance that God has appointed to prevent the breach of this commandment. Um, Now, again, we're going to touch on this some more next week. But God has given marriage to all men and women who experience this burning regardless of what direction their struggles or temptations may run. Uh, I am not saying that marriage removes all temptations from everyone, but it is God's appointed means and context within which we're meant to give expression to our God-given sexuality. And so the first thing that we need to say to those who are same-sex attracted and my assumption is there could be some, of, some folks who struggle with that in our church. I don't assume that's not the case. Insofar as they are sinful, God intends for your desires to be sanctified. And he intends for all of us to put our sinful desires to death, whatever those desires are. We, we have to be careful not to get our moral compass from the culture around us, from the feeling that's in the air, Instead, we need to go to the sound place to find it. And that's God's word. The second thing I want to say to those who struggle with this is, please turn to the resources of the church. In Christ's church, we are all here to do battle together against all of our sins. In, in this church, by God's grace, in this church, we will not make excuses for things that God has called sin but we also will not and should not act as if some temptations are so beyond the pale that we should never confess them or make war against them. 
If we won't confess our sins to each other, then sin keeps its power over us. Um, James tells us in James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Um, Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens. There's, there's meant to be a community aspect to our battle against sin, whatever our sins are. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a wonderful little book called Life Together. I, I know some of you have read it, and, and it is, it's lovely for a lot of reasons. But, but one of them is simply the community aspect of confessing our sins to each other. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. He says, Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand before a a brother as a sinner is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies. Because this humiliation is so hard, we continually scheme to evade confessing to a brother. Our eyes are so blinded that they no longer see the promise and the glory of such abasement, right? There's something in us that resists confessing our sins to each other. And and what what Bonhoeffer is getting at is actually it's the old man fighting against us. The old man doesn't want us to confess our sin because as long as it's unconfessed, it still has power over us. I think this is a good word. I don't think this is just a good word for those who struggle with same-sex attraction this is a good word for any of us who struggle with sin, right? Let's be a church that expects and welcomes confession so that sinners don't feel like they'll never find help from us here, that this is a place for the sinless people to come. This is a place for the cleaned up people to come as though some sins are so special and so unique that Jesus will not help us to make progress against them. God forbid that impression ever be given by us. Now, I know that seems like a rabbit trail, But I want you to remember this. Marriage is created by God. It is not an eternal thing. It is not an ultimate thing. But it is a present day ordinance for our good. And the reason why that last section was not a rabbit trail is because, A, there are people who are calling some to celibacy who aren't called to it. And the second reason is because it does have a current present day value in our fight against sin. And so when we say that it's a present day ordinance, here's what we mean. It was given to mankind in the very beginning. And it was given to us as a means of being fruitful and multiplying. Marriage is good. Marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is a blessing, but it does not ultimately define us. Marriage is valuable, but it doesn't give us our true worth. And and it can't because it doesn't last. Think of... Some of you in this room are married. Some of you in this room are no longer married. Uh, and so everyone should be able to relate to this on some level, I think. But let's say you're married. Best marriage ever. Happiest marriage ever. Longest marriage ever. Even if we keep our vows, one of the haunting things about those wedding vows is knowing that you're making vows that are meant to be lifelong. And that means that one of us will see the other pass away. Unless it happens Titanic style, right? And we're both laying there together and it just happens. But, but more than likely, one of us says goodbye to the other. And, and so so-and-so's wife or so-and-so's husband cannot be 
the be all end all of who we are because what happens when they're gone? We cease to be anybody, right? Our identity was all bound up in this other person. That cannot be who we are. Marriage is not ultimate. Instead, here's, here's the reality. It is Christ who endures. It is Christ who lasts. It is Christ who defines us and gives worth to us and gives value to us. Not this other person. That person was given to us for a time. Maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 50 years, maybe 60 years even. They were given to us for a time. And and it was a blessing. It was a comfort. But it was never who we were ultimately. This goes for marriage. This also goes for singleness. Your singleness doesn't define you. Your singleness doesn't give you worth. And that's because God in the gospel of his son is... Everything that you are meant to be, and it is the source of hope that you are meant to have. Your status as a married or single might change, right, in this life. It might ebb and flow. It might come and go. But in Christ, your status as a child of God never changes. You can't lose it. You can't stop it. It doesn't come and go. It is a part of you, and and it really does define who you are in a way that marriage cannot do and in a way that can never be lost. In other words, marriage is temporal. Marriage is temporary. The second thing I want us to know, though, is that, and I want, is that I want us to see the imperfection of marriage. And in order to do that, we need to address some well-meaning misunderstandings of marriage. Um, I think some of these misunderstandings actually serve to feed the discontent of many people who feel with the state of singleness they, they find themselves in, that they're just so discontent because they think, Well, some of these other things would be changed if only I were married. Um, The first myth I want to address is that marriage will be easy. Now, that might sound like a really just sort of a softball thing for me to address, but I still want to point something out about marriage. Marriage existed before the fall. So if you look in the Genesis narrative, marriage happens and marriage happens before Adam and Eve fall into sin, um, just like work, right? I've pointed this out in the past that work takes place before the fall. And so the man is placed in the garden to work and tend it. And, and he's put there and he's given his work before there are, it was a such thing as thistles or thorns or pain. Marriage is like work in that sense. It, it is a good that came before the fall. And that means that marriage is not an evil, nor does it exist because of evil. Marriage is good. But think about this. Work isn't bad, but after the fall, what happens to work? It becomes hard. The good thing becomes a hard thing. Now there's sweat. Now, there's, now there are brambles. Now there are thorns and thistles. And the curse of the fall then, of the fall, what does it do? It takes a good thing and makes it hard. The curse of the fall is constantly broadcasting into our lives this unavoidable truth. You have good things now. Heaven still isn't yet. We're in a cursed creation. And and every time we work by the sweat of our brow, every hard day's work that you you get home and, and you say, this was a hard day's work. Every single day you're being reminded that we are not there yet. You're being reminded that your work is good, that it's important, that it's worth it, but that we have not arrived yet. And the same is true of marriage. Marriage after the fall stays good, just like work stays good, but it becomes hard. 
because it still involves two sinners. And usually it involves two sinners making more little sinners who then make little sinners of their own, right? Um, Marriage in a fallen world is like work. It's still good, but now it's hard. It's still good, but now it takes work. It's still good, but now it takes effort that perhaps it didn't take before the fall. It's a myth that marriage will be easy. It's something we tell ourselves uh, from a distance. Marriage seems like it will be easy from a distance and sort of uh, the grass is always greener on the other side kind of a way. But, but in the midst of it, you find out that marriage is like all work. It's challenging. It's important. It's rewarding. But it's also difficult. Um, a second myth I want to address is the myth that marriage will fulfill us. Calvin was very fond of pointing out that people are endless idol factories. Uh, We will make idols out of anything. Uh, We will take good things and we'll turn them into ultimate things. We'll take a good thing and we'll make it bigger than it is. Um, Even something as good as marriage. We can take something as good as marriage and we can make an idol out of that. Um, But you'll notice in scripture that marriage does next to nothing to actually curb people's hunger for more. Um, it doesn't end up filling that God-shaped hole in people's hearts. I was just thinking of some married people in Scripture. Um, I was thinking of Ahab and his wife, right? Ahab is is married to this woman, uh, even though he's the king, even though he has so much power. He is constantly yearning for more. He's constantly grabbing for more. Marriage doesn't satisfy this man. Um, marriage doesn't fill him up. Uh, he's jealous of poor little Naboth and his little vineyard. You know, he wants a little tiny plot of land. He's so jealous, but he's married, right? And here's what happens. Actually, what happens is Ahab's wife actually feeds his sin. And she actually encourages him to steal the vineyard from this man. Um, Ahab is married, but he is not fulfilled. His, his marriage actually seems to exacerbate his sin, truth be told. Or think of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Solomon has the same appetite and he finds that his appetite for things under the sun is endless and he goes after it uh, to a degree that I think none of us have the resources to. And in the end, what he finds is that marriage doesn't change any of these things for Solomon. He ends up finding that all of these things are vain and a chasing after the wind. That is true of Solomon. That is also true of his father, David. What we find in scripture is this long line of people who are teaching us that marriage is good, but it simply will not fulfill us apart from Jesus. Instead, what happens is is this. If we're not already satisfied by God in Christ, and if we don't already find our identity in Christ, then when we get married, we end up laying so many expectations on this other person. We expect this other person to be everything to us. We expect them to be capable of making us happy. That sounds so simple, but we actually expect another mortal human being to make us happy. Um, We expect them to have some superhuman power to fill up our heart. And then when that doesn't happen, we start to think, well, what's wrong with them? Or maybe what's wrong with us? Or maybe what's wrong with our marriage? And then we become discontented in our marriage because we expect something of that marriage that it was never designed to be and it was never designed to produce. 
I think every couple who's considering marriage should have a sit down where they remind each other, I'm just a mortal person. I will love you. I will keep my marriage vows, but I will never promise to fill up what is lacking in your soul. I will never complete you. Uh, You will only find that through union with Christ. God is the only one who can do that for you. If you're expecting that of me, then we should not be marrying. And by the way, this is a very important reason that if you're a believer, you should not marry a non-Christian. Because here's the problem with marrying a non-Christian. And I could go to Paul and Paul says people should not be unequally yoked. That's one problem with being mar- marrying a non-Christian. But even someone who says they have no problem with you being religious, but if they're not pursuing God themselves, then here is the problem. If you decide to marry a non-Christian, you will be married to someone who was created to find their fulfillment and joy in God. But apart from God-centeredness, they will instead be constantly looking askance at their life and wondering why you aren't doing God's job. Why you are so disappointing. Why you don't satisfy the way that God was meant to. Now this is important Peter tells us that if you're already married to a non-Christian, you should not divorce them because they're not a Christian. Instead, Peter says that you are meant to be a model of gospel love to your spouse with the hope of winning over your, your spouse. God does not want you to divorce the person you're already married to just because they're not a Christian. And Paul says the same thing as well. But if you aren't married yet, And this person isn't a Christian. God is telling you loud and clear to put the brakes on your romantic pursuit. My point in saying all of this is that I want you to see that if you are single, there is a sense in which your singleness is imperfect. And we'll talk about that next week. Um, And if you're married, you need to see your married state is imperfect too. None of these relationship states are meant to do what Christ alone is meant to do. None of them can complete you. They cannot fulfill you. They cannot satisfy you. And they cannot define you. Being one flesh with your spouse cannot fulfill you the way union with Christ fulfills you. This person by design will always leave an empty space that belongs to the creator. If you take this to heart, This will be very liberating. It'll be liberating to you because now if you're married, you stop putting unrealistic expectations on your husband or your wife. Uh, You stop expecting them to be Jesus to you. And it'll be liberating for your spouse because your spouse now will know that as important as it is for you to love each other, they don't have to carry the weight of your meaning and your satisfaction on their shoulders anymore because they know you will be looking to God for that and they'll know that God is up to the task in a way they are not. That is liberating to you as a married person. Marriage is good, but it is imperfect. That does not mean that it is bad. It is not a strike against marriage. It's not a criticism of marriage. But, the, but its imperfection is why in marriages, the most important thing we can do is point each other to Jesus. Husband, point your wife to Jesus. Point your family to Jesus. Wife, be, it, be a constant encouragement to your husband, not only to lead the family, but to keep his own gospel light burning brightly. 
Um, C.S. Lewis has this place in his book, The Four Loves. And in, in The Four Loves, he talks about the ways that lovers and friends look and feel. Um, listen to what he says again. I, you may have heard this before. It's pretty common to quote this passage on, from The Four Loves. But he says this. He says, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Uh, lovers are normally face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side by side, absorbed in some common interest. Above all, Eros, while it lasts, is necessarily between two only. And, and I would just add one thing to what Lewis says here. A Christian marriage is meant to be a mixture of friendship and romantic love. In marriages, we're not buddies. We are not roommates. Marriage is not purely romantic and it's not purely friendship. Marriage is romantic. But it's romantic with a balance because we also are pressing one another to look out and away from ourselves. Our eyes aren't just on each other in marriage. In marriage, the couple are face to face, talking to one another, about one another, delighting in one another. But we also, in a sense, love one another through one another. We love God through one another because we're always looking at each other as the gift and we're looking at God as the giver. So when we enjoy this person, we're really enjoying God. When we enjoy this person, we're enjoying the gift that God has given. And so when we love each other, we can love God by loving each other, by remembering the God who has given us to each other. We love one another for God's sake, not for each other's sake alone. We love God through one another. Even in the romance, the the married couple is meant to keep pointing each other to the greater love, to the greatest love that's found in God. Let's pray together. Oh God, it it is always a temptation to take the gifts that you give and glorify those gifts. To make them greater than we're supposed to. For those here who are married, oh God, give us a great love for our spouse, but help us as spouses to always press each other to find our greatest satisfaction in Christ alone. Lord, for those here who are single, Lord, uh, I pray that this week and next week that you would be feeding, feeding all of us richly from your word and reminding us of the goodness of Christ of the value of following Jesus, I pray that you would be reminding us, oh God, that our value isn't attached to our romantic relationships. Our, our value isn't even attached to marriage. Instead, you tell us that it is knowing you that defines us. It is knowing Christ that gives us value. It's in being united to Christ that we find everything that we are meant to have. Help us to remember it, oh God, especially if we struggle with discontentment. Would you remove from us discontentment, Lord, whatever position we find ourselves in? Help for us to find our all and our hope and our joy in Jesus Christ, whom we can never lose. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.